Song number 520. Andrew asked that we mark that, and we're certainly happy to do that. Isn't it a grand thing to be able to assemble in the peaceful and harmonious way in which we can, for the next few moments, direct our attentions and heartfelt appreciation to worship the great God of heaven. He has been so good to us, hasn't he? That previous song just before that one is a direct quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 31. All of us who are faithful shall indeed mount up with wings like eagles, and we'll run and not grow weary, and we'll walk and not faint. This life often brings its problems and challenges, and aren't we thankful to in fact serve a loving and faithful God who has promised, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. The very wording of Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. As you probably have already noticed, our lesson today, the title of which is on the wall to my left, has to do with not the most pleasant of topics, but nonetheless, it is a frequent one in the Bible, isn't it? And it's one that really is a constant temptation, it would seem, and something that we need to be aware of what the Bible has to say about it. Some introductory thoughts certainly would not be out of order. You and I well know that when it comes to lying, it is something that most youngsters will reach an age where they, they want to try that and they feel perhaps encouraged to try. And when dad and mom find out about it, it is a very teachable moment. How will that lying be responded to and what do dad and mom feel about it? Can I get away with it? Isn't it true, not only that, but not only in the lives of youngsters, what about even we as adults? Talk to any lawyer, of course, or at least read about the features concerning matters in court cases. And isn't it true? Perjury is a very thing we seemingly hear often on the news. So-and-so perjured himself. He later made comments that contradicted what he earlier stated under oath. And that's a serious matter. He lied. Perhaps in another example, we know the NBC News Network not too long ago had their major news anchor who himself was found to be a bit deceptive in that he asserted or at least insinuated what was never the case. We know he's no longer the anchor for the nightly news on NBC, Brian Williams. What does the Bible say about lying? What does the Word of God bring before you and me as we at least give some appreciation to that topic? You'll notice that there are a number of things that might be said, but without a doubt the first one that should come before us is this. What is the basic nature of lying? How does the Bible define it? That's what this whole slide basically is about. And the first thing that should rest upon your mind and mine is this. Lying is of the devil. The very first time you and I ever encounter him in Genesis 3 verse 1, he's lying. God specifically said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the very first words out of the devil's mouth, Thou shalt not surely die. He lied to her. He insinuated to her what was the opposite of what God had affirmed. Now you and I realize that in that episode, Jesus ultimately defined it even more thoroughly, didn't he? In John 8 verse 44, as Jesus addressed by way of powerful language, he said, Ye are of your, your father the devil. Now, Jesus was speaking to a group of religious individuals, Jews, if you please. And he told them, you are of your father, the devil. Now, how did the Lord continue that discussion? 
the closing part of John 8, 44. He, that's the devil, is a liar and the father of it. All lies ultimately come from him. He encourages it. He, in fact, supports the development of it. That idea alone leads us to note this. The devil is expressly called in Revelation 12, verses 9 and 10, the deceiver of the whole world. He doesn't tell the truth. He will present things in a way to insinuate, to equivocate, to openly lie sometimes, but he is a deceiver. Every time then that you or I or someone else were to speak a lie, that's really of the devil. The notion of that perhaps brings us to a definition. So how would one define lying? In what does it consist? Here is a definition. It is to deliberately make an untrue statement with the intent to deceive. Now, as you and I think about that deliberate making of a statement, that could be orally, it could be that which is spoken, it could be what's written. A person could lie by what he or she writes. It is to make an untrue statement with the deliberate intent to deceive. An additional consideration might be this. It is to create a false or misleading impression. When you and I give thought to that, you'll notice that the word deliberate seems to be a very interesting and very vital part of that definition, isn't it? It is an individual who, with premeditation, speaks what's not true with the intent to deceive, for the other person to believe that and to perhaps act upon it. That deliberation, of course, leads us to notice that there are some occasions then in times when that helps us appreciate very well the feature of lying. Consider the following scenario. Perhaps a wife asks of her husband, where are the scissors? The husband says, they're in the drawer in the cabinet. Little did the husband know that 15 minutes previous, the teenage daughter had come and taken the scissors, and she was now using them. And despite the fact the husband didn't know it, you see, he told the wife what he thought was true. And to the best of his knowledge and ability, he stated where the scissors were. He may have only seen them an hour previous. You'll notice he had no deliberate intent to deceive his wife, to tell her what wasn't true, although what he said wasn't true anymore. The act of deliberation is a very serious thing, isn't it? The person who intends to deceive and knows about that deception. Maybe in light of that, look at the other ways the Bible identifies that issue. Lying is something that God absolutely hates. In Proverbs chapter 6, we notice that there's a listing of seven things that God hates. Seven things that really are detestable to Him. And of that grouping of seven things, two of them involve lying. It's as though there's an added emphasis on the fact that God hates a lying tongue and He hates a witness that bears false testimony. Lying is something God absolutely hates. You'll notice also in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination unto God. He absolutely loathes lying. Perhaps you can see in that then the devil encourages what God hates. When we give thought then about that lying, the last comment on that particular slide surely must be this one. 
What about the destiny? What about the end result of any and all liars? God makes that abundantly plain, does it, in Revelation 21.8. There He says, all liars, not some of them, not most of them, but all liars shall have their part in the lake burning with fire and brimstone. I realize that there are times when we as the human family like to distinguish. Sometimes we'll call certain lies a white lie. and Sometimes it's a minor lie. and Sometimes it's a dark or black lie. Isn't it significant? God's Word seems to make no distinction like that. And isn't it rather amazing that in that text of Revelation 21, He says, all liars. Not just the black ones. Not just the significant ones, if you please. Might you and I take careful note then about lying? It's a serious business, isn't it? Maybe that seriousness leads us to the remainder of the lesson this morning. What might be some reasons as to why a person might be motivated to lie? I believe as we study these, we'll find the Bible has given us records about a lot of people who lied. We'll see if we can't revisit somewhat briefly the episodes contained in them and ask what happened to those people. Did it turn out well or did it not? As far as why an individual might lie, sometimes a person might be motivated to tell a lie because the end result might be the praise of men. So maybe I'll tell a lie because ultimately that would lead to a great heap and compliment upon me. Look at 2 Samuel 1 verse number 10. You may remember in that age of the Old Testament that King David was at this point the one who had authority and jurisdiction. And there was a man who came to him and said, I killed King Saul. Now you and I know in 1 Samuel 31, the record tells us that Saul took his own life. He committed suicide. And yet here was a servant who came before David and said, I killed him. Without doubt, that servant thought that to remove the previous king and allow David to become the next king. David would praise him and perhaps honor him mightily. David had him put to death. The man lied. And he had the nerve, in fact, to appreciate a claim to actually removing the one that was God's anointed, the previous king. David had the man killed. Lying didn't work out so well for that man, did it? Look at another scene taken from the heart of the New Testament in Acts chapter 5. This was a scene you and I had mentioned in passing this past Wednesday evening. Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife who themselves were privileged to own a parcel of land, they maybe had witnessed what happened when Barnabas sold some land. Barnabas sold the land that he had and he gave that money to the apostles and it would appear that there was a high compliment to Barnabas for doing that. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be complimented. Maybe they wanted, in fact, everyone to praise them for being so selfless in giving. fact is, though, they kept back part of the price of the land. They sold it, gave part to the apostles, and made the claim that they gave all of it. They lied. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4 tell us they lied to the Holy Spirit. One more time, what happened on this occasion? Ananias died. Three hours later, his wife died. Both died the same day because they lied. One more time, it didn't turn out very well, did it? 
perhaps as you can see, these comments seem very much then to be in order. Our God is a God who loves the truth and He appreciates it and He encourages truth in you and in me. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding, to quote Proverbs 23, 23. May I say to you that there came a time in the Old Testament, it is in the prophet Zechariah. In the eighth chapter of that book, we find God's people, the people of Judah, people who seemingly were far too often given to lying. And on that occasion, the message of God through the prophet was, Speak every man the truth with his neighbor. If we are servants of God, lying should be far from us. We should pursue and highlight the truth. But what about another motivation that some might consider in regard to lying? Notice the bottom of the slide. It does seem for some reason that there are some individuals who just love to lie. They just seemingly relish the thought of it. Maybe we could say that differently. Over the course of time, they have developed a life in which they habitually lie. They've told enough lies in the past. It worked enough times that now they just habitually do it. What about those that seemingly have a love for it? It seems like that's directly what's mentioned in Psalm 52.3. Even in the Old Testament, here is a record of those who loved lying more than they loved righteousness. As that psalm develops, again, it didn't work out very well. We notice then how important it is, and this is why it's so important for a youngster. Parents, we can't ever let youngsters come to the point where they lie because it's worked. They need to be taught from an early age how that lying leads to great problems, pain sometimes, and difficulties, so that they never develop a habit in which lying supposedly is the way out. But in addition to that, notice in Psalm 50, verse number 19, the nature of lips that spread lies and how that in fact it appears to be that which has worked for some. You and I notice that kind of pursuit God's Word absolutely does not endorse. In Jeremiah 9, verses 4 and following, the prophet Jeremiah as he addressed the scene through the words of God on that occasion, one more time, the people were valiant, but not for truth. They lied. It was a common part of society in that ancient era, and God says, I don't like this. God doesn't like it any better today, does He? For that reason, the bottom statement, how sad it is when a person's conscience is allowed to become hardened or perhaps boldened to the point where lying doesn't bother that person anymore. If you and I fall prey to telling a lie, hopefully it'll bother your conscience and mine. Hopefully we won't be able to sleep very well. Hopefully we'll be a bit agitated because that means we still have a conscience that can be moved by lying. Whether it be the one who loves to lie or whether the one who has seeks out the praise of men, what about a third motivation sometimes that can be used to consider lying? This third one I've entitled as follows. Sometimes isn't it true that maybe you and I have been in that situation or we've witnessed it in the lives of others, but a person is motivated to lie to protect a friend. 
let's develop that like this. You and I can consider many situations or examples. Maybe a couple of teenagers are caught doing what they ought not to have been doing, and one says, don't tell my parents. If they ask you, you say this instead. You lie for me. You don't give away what we were doing and where we were. Well, that again is something like what happened in the Bible a number of times, wasn't it? What about that scene in Joshua chapter 2 wherein Rahab comes before us? The children of Israel were moving their direction toward, of course, the conquering of Jericho. And Joshua sent out a couple of spies and they came to Jericho and they dwelled in the house of a woman named Rahab. Rahab lodged them, but the king of Jericho heard that they were there. And so he sent messengers and he told Rahab, bring out the men. And she said, they're not here. They did come, but they've already gone. Despite the fact she had taken them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax, Rahab lied. Now in this instance, she was protecting, of course, those men. Might we note this? Perhaps it's fair to observe. Rahab is mentioned one more time in the New Testament in Hebrews 11. It was on that occasion that she is described as a person of faith a person who had enough confidence and trust in the fact that her people were going to be defeated and Israel was coming. And that faith motivated her, prompted her. May we pause at this point to say, the New Testament does not praise Rahab's lying. Nowhere does the New Testament praise her in that. It does praise her faith. God could have protected those spies even without her lying. Now her lying is something, of course, that was not a good thing. But we notice she was trying to protect some other people. You might notice even beyond that, we should now perhaps bring the matter before you and me directly. This friend of mine who has asked me to lie for him, how should I look upon that? If he loves me, would he ask me to lie for him? 1 Corinthians 13 verses 5 and 6 directly say that love thinketh no evil. Love does not behave itself unseemly. Those two alone would motivate that if a person's a true friend, he won't ask you to lie for him. If a person's a true friend, she won't ask you to lie for her. She'll understand that consequences apparently are before her and the person will just have to face them. But it will not be by way of a lie. May we then understand that the circumstances surrounding lying, this too is not a good reason for it. What about in the fourth case? Maybe we are quick to comment in examples of your own life or mine that there are circumstances in which a person is moved to lie in the interest of avoiding conflict. Unless I tell this lie, I'm going to face some difficult circumstances. Dad and Mom are not going to like it. My teacher is not going to like it. And so I'll lie to get my way out of it, or at least to protect myself, to avoid conflict. And may I say, that does seem to be a common consideration. Look at a few Bible examples. What about Peter? You remember the same well. It is given to us in more than one gospel account, but I've selected Luke's version for our consideration in Luke 22, beginning in verse 54, Jesus had already been arrested. He was now appearing before the court, the Jewish court, 
And we remember that Peter was at a distance. A young maiden said, you were one of them, weren't you? This man was with them. Peter said, oh, not me. I don't know the man. Peter lied. It wasn't too long later that someone else said, weren't you with him? Peter said, oh, you're mistaken. Not, not me. I don't know him. About an hour later, a third person. This man's speech betrays him. He was with him. I know he was. Peter began to curse. I don't know the man. Three times Peter lied. Three times Peter denied knowing the Lord. Peter did it because no doubt he was afraid of what it might mean for him. That man, Jesus, is on trial. And if I admit to being with him, I may be next. Didn't change the fact he lied. As you and I think about avoiding conflict, we notice how sorrowful Peter was after the final lie. Remember the cock crew, just like Jesus told him it would, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. He knew what he had done. Isn't it true so often when an untruth is spoken, it's not very long thereafter our countenance sinks we just feel rotten inside because we know we should have told the truth or we know we should have at least defended it, but we didn't. Peter was sorrowful. Isn't it a great thing that apparently in his repentance it was he who was selected to preach the first gospel sermon. It was he who was given the privilege of preaching to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Surely that brings us to perhaps another example, maybe a bit more tame in some regards, but nonetheless easy to understand. Think back to the days of Abraham. Abraham, we notice, was certainly a very noteworthy individual, spoken of as a man of faith, and yet in Genesis chapter 12, we notice that he was married to a pretty lady. Sarah was a beautiful woman. We're going into Egypt. You tell them you're my sister, because they may well take you and kill me, Abraham told her to lie for him. Now, it is true it was a partial truth. She was his half-sister, but that didn't escape the fact God punished the Egyptians because Abraham lied. Abraham, you see, was married to this woman. She was not just his sister. The closer union was, in fact, his wife. But Abraham lied to try and avoid conflict. Now, that same lie he told again later, or he encouraged her to tell again later in Genesis chapter 20, it worked out about as well the second time as it did the first. Maybe you and I can see in all of that that lying can often be a strongly encouraged thing, and the devil is behind it the whole way, isn't he? And he wants you and me as Christians to be people who are not respectful of the truth. If others around us perceive we are not that respectful of the truth, how likely is it that they'll believe what we say as it relates to religious things? Isn't it true? We should be people of truth in every way, whether it be religious matters or not. My word is my bond. That's the kind of statement that was at one time made, wasn't it? And it has some degree of biblical consideration based on Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Surely in light of those things, we close that slide and notice we've looked at four motivations that some might consider for lying and all of them have failed miserably because God always encourages the truth. How about a fifth one? 
Sometimes we might be encouraged to consider lying in the interest of personal advantage. Maybe this lie will ultimately lead to a better circumstance for me, perhaps financially or otherwise. It too might be noted that there are examples in the Word of God of those who tried this, those who in fact did this. Why don't we look one by one, beginning in Genesis 27. This one is in many ways a very sad story. It is a very telling record, not only of an individual, but his mother as well. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons. One of them, of course, was Esau, and the other was Jacob. Now, Dad liked Esau the better, and Mom liked Jacob the better. And we remember that already Jacob had apprised himself of the birthright. He'd, Esau had sold it for a bowl of soup. However, the time then came in Genesis 27 when mom wanted Jacob to have the family blessing as well. Now that blessing went to the oldest boy, and so Esau by right should have had it. However, however, the time came that of course as Isaac was to give it, Rebekah told Jacob, you go out and kill an animal, <laughs> a goat, and I'll fix it up and dress it like what Esau's going to fix in terms of venison. And you go in and you get the blessing from your nearly blind dad. And Jacob did it. He went in and when Isaac said, Are you Esau? And he said, Yes, I am. Jacob lied. He lied. And Rebekah lied by helping him. Here was a great deal of lying going on in the reception of the family blessing. Now, as you and I reflect on the way that that ultimately worked out one more time, we should say God could have brought about His will thoroughly without their lying. We know that Jacob eventually was to have it anyway, but isn't it sad how it came about? A family predicated on lying? A mother and a son who lied against the dad and father? As you think about that one, it by no means is the only example. Their personal advantage on that occasion... Maybe it reminds us of Gehazi in 2 Kings 5. Here the scene again is a very telling one. Naaman had come to be cleansed of leprosy and Elisha told him what needed to be accomplished. Dipped seven times in the Jordan River. Initially, Naaman was very hesitant. There are other rivers cleaner than this one. Why can't I use them? Finally, his servants... In a fit of reason, urged him, if he had asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Finally, Naaman does go and dip seven times in that river, and he comes up perfectly clean after the seventh time. His leprosy's gone. He has a whole host of gifts to give to Elisha. In thanksgiving for him being cleansed, Elisha says, I don't want your money and I don't want your gifts. But Naaman's servant, or rather Elisha's servant, hears all of that and he would like some of it. And so after Naaman was sent on his way, the servant runs and catches up to him and said, My master has changed his mind. He'd like to have some of the things you wish to offer him. And so Gehazi takes them for himself. When he comes back to the house, Elisha says, Gehazi, where'd you go? The servant said, I didn't go anywhere. Naaman said, oh, or rather Elisha said, oh, that I was with you when you went and done what you shouldn't have done. Gehazi lied. 
in the character of the judgment of God, God said the leprosy that was on Naaman is now going to rest on you. Lying didn't work so well for Gehazi, did it? As we think about all of these examples, we begin to see lying has been an oft-tried thing in the human family, isn't it? Maybe a sixth motivation might be to ask us this. As we have seemingly have found messages in which lying hasn't been worth it, yet another motivation that sometimes appears is to avoid embarrassment. A situation arises, perhaps it has been an unplanned thing, and you're on the spot. Well, the easiest way to save a little face is to just tell a lie and to get out of it. That too was tried in the Bible. Why don't we reflect for a moment on Genesis 39. You remember the scene of Joseph? Joseph, of course, was a person who sought the purpose and will of God, and here he was in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife began to cast her eyes toward him. She wanted to lie with him, commit fornication with him. Joseph didn't want interested in that, though. You remember as it finally reached its head, you remember that he fled out of the house, leaving his coat behind. But Potiphar's wife told a lie about Joseph. She approached her husband Potiphar and said, Look, this Hebrew that you brought into the house, he tried to seduce me. He wanted to have his way with me, and here's his coat to prove it. All the while, Joseph had been the one fleeing. She was the one that was the culprit. She lied about Joseph. You remember what happened. Joseph was thrown into prison. He stayed in prison for quite some time due to her lies about him. That seems a rather harsh thing, doesn't it? Sometimes our lies can get us into great problem, and they can even have great influence on others, causing hardship for them. You'll notice in terms of that lying, wasn't even the king of Israel, Saul, given to it too? God told him to destroy the Amalekites. And after the aftermath of that battle, when he came back, the prophet said, did you do it? The king said, yes, sir, I did it. I destroyed them just like God told me to. Well, why then do I hear the bleeding of the sheep? And why do I see King Agag standing here? It looks to me like he didn't do it. Saul lied. He lied. We remember the kingdom was taken from him. And one better than he was sought to be the next king. One more time, lying didn't work out so well. It was, in fact, a very serious matter. To that, one could add a number of other examples. Maybe the old prophet fell into this trap in 1 Kings 13. That perhaps is a scene that is a very challenging one here. An old prophet lied to a younger prophet. We've often reflected upon that. We notice the younger prophet ultimately lost his life in part because of the lie of the older prophet. What motivated the older prophet to lie? Maybe it was to avoid embarrassment. Here God has selected a prophet from a far distant place to come here into my territory and prophesy against the king. Why didn't he select me? Why wasn't I the one chosen by God to do this prophesying? Maybe his life was a poor reflection of what it ought to have been and maybe that lie is just case in point. Whatever it was, he lied. And we remember what terrible consequences it had for the young prophet. Lying is a pretty sad thing, isn't it? As we close that slide and come near the close of the lesson this morning, 
one final observation about lying. One final consideration that might help us see how much God has to say about how bad it is. Isn't it true that sometimes there are individuals who might be quick to say, the ultimate end result of my lie was good, therefore the lie was justified. And so God does permit me to lie as long as the end result is good. That's not true. It is not in any case possible in light of what we've seen to appreciate that kind of logic. Although there are some who tried it, like in 2 Kings 10, there, Jehu, one of the Old Testament kings, he himself had a desire to pursue the things of God. And so he invited all the prophets of Baal to come to a celebration, a time when they were supposedly to be properly honored. However, he really wanted to kill every one of them when they got there. He just told them that story so they'd come. Well, sure enough, they came and they were all killed. You might argue that good ultimately came out of it. But might we never forget, God judged the house of Jehu very harshly because he shed blood and a lot of it. Maybe as you think about all that attribute of lying, isn't it true it's never right to tell a lie? It's never right to insinuate. It's never right to give information concerning leaving wrong impressions. Matt read earlier from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor, whether it be in the days of Jehu, the days of Abraham, the days of Moses, or even the days of Peter. Lying has often been tried, but God encourages us to a better way of life than that. As you notice on those conclusion statements at the bottom of that slide, the Bible calls sin a lie. I said that backward. The Bible calls lying a sin. The Bible brings before us the fact God loves the truth and He Himself is a God who cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2, If you and I are then His servants, we too will not be given to it either. We'll uphold the truth in our lives and expect it in others and encourage it in others because we love the truth because the truth is of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. As you and I then examine our own lives, is lying a part of what we've become? Is lying a part of what we've tried to justify? I trust that it's not because we love that which God loves and He loves the truth and He does hate lying. It might be that there's someone in the audience today that's not a faithful Christian. Maybe you've never become a Christian don't you want to have your sins washed away, whatever they may have been? Christ's blood can do that, and we're promised that it will do that. As you reach the blood of Christ in the act of baptism, those baptismal waters behind me are prepared. We could assist you today in becoming a New Testament Christian. If you have become that Christian as a result of your faith, your repentance, your confession and baptism, but you haven't been faithful and true to the Word of God today, if you've reached the point of realizing that and you'd like to make some changes and come back to your first love, we'd be happy to pray to God for you if we could help you do that today. Why don't you make confession in the proper way publicly and make a statement of repentance and beseech the prayers of, of individuals? We'd love to do that for you. If we could help today in either of these ways, why don't you come while together we stand together and while we sing?